Today, we're going to talk about uncertainty, specifically scientific uncertainty. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. And we're going to talk about this in the context of the government response to the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment and some lessons learned. You are listening to the Critical Science Podcast. been a great couple of weeks for me hopefully it's been a great couple of weeks for you as well thanks for listening to the uh, critical science podcast so let's let's talk about uh, let's just cut to the chase let's talk about scientific uncertainty right so when we when we talk about scientific uncertainty um what 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 scientists what we generally mean is um you know we we don't have uh we don't have 100 certainty in most of what's happening in science so like if i measure something uh, I can't tell you, for instance, that, um, well, let's just take an example. So if I were to measure um, the length of something with a ruler, right, I can't tell you for 100% that the length is one inch, right? Uh, what I could do is I might measure it two, three, four, five times. And generally speaking, we probably aren't going to be super duper exact, Right. For most of the things that we're doing, it's like, yeah, it's close enough. It's like, it's, it's, it's close enough to an inch, right? Um, and with, with science, when we need to have really high precision, we might measure a length using a tool called a caliper. Now with the caliper, I can get really super duper precise, right? So the first time I measure it might be 0.97 inches. The next time I measure it again, it might be 0.96 inches. I measure it again, it's 0.9 eight inches, right? So it's really close to an inch. And for most of what we do, you know, calling an inch is probably okay. When you start getting into high precision things, you know, that those decimal places there, those can actually matter. And in toxicology, that decimal place can matter uh, depending upon what the units are that we're talking about. And the other way that we can't really be certain about things is you know, we're not we're not going to uh, expose every single human on Earth to every single chemical and see how they respond. There's lots of issues with that. Just in terms of practicality, you just can't do that. That's it's it's impractical. But yeah, you know, when you also think about it, it's it's probably not the most ethical thing in the world to expose people to known poisons uh, at levels at which you expect them to be poisonous. Right? It's probably not the most ethical thing in the world to do. So, you know, let's take the example of, um, of drug clinical trials. So in a drug clinical trial, you may have a few thousand patients in, in your clinical trial, and you're trying to see what in the world does this drug do to these individuals, especially if it's a very common disease. It's pretty easy to recruit thousands of people. Now, you're going to take the information about those thousands of people and how they respond to the drug and you're now going to apply that knowledge and that information that you have across a much, much, much larger group of people. We're talking millions of people. Now, again, we can't expose all the millions of people who might take this drug. So that's why we chose this smaller sample. And so we, we have this smaller sample. And now, you know, we, we don't know exactly how every single person is going to respond to this drug, but we have a pretty good idea as to how many people are going to respond to this drug. And so 
we have some uncertainty about how you might respond to this drug. We have a decent amount of certainty, but still there's uncertainty there about how the entire population is going to respond to this drug. So this, this is what we're talking about when, when, I, when I mean uncertainty. We, we can't say for 100% certain how you might respond or, or what's, what's happening. We can't, you know, even with our measurements, we don't always have 100% precision, right? There, there, there's always some degree of, of, of uncertainty here. Well, when we're talking about toxicology and we're talking about, you know, what's happening in the real world, right? So real world toxicology, you know, let's take, for instance, the uh, train derailment that happened in East Palestine, Ohio. We don't know for certain how every single human is going to respond to the the milieu, the mix of chemicals that uh that they're being exposed to as a result of this train derailment. Now, you know, one of the most toxic chemicals that, um, what, that we believe was on that train is vinyl or was vinyl chloride and vinyl chloride, you know, it's not something you necessarily want to inhale. It's a very necessary component for our, um, industry. Uh, it is, um, what is used to create uh, polyvinyl chloride, for instance, uh, PVC. So you see that as PVC pipe. So it's a very important part of our, of our economy, but it's not exactly something you want to breathe in either, but by itself, you know, vinyl chloride, it's not a great thing to breathe in. Having said that, you know, there, there was a lot of things that happened in East Palestine and I, I I'll get into those, you know, in a different podcast, but right now what I, what I want to focus on is the fact that People in East Palestine were actually exposed to a mixture of chemicals, not just vinyl chloride, but you remember the vinyl chloride was burned off. And so that's going to produce all kinds of different chemicals that um, people are now going to be exposed to. And the question becomes, you know, when when people are now experiencing these these health effects, like, you know, they, they their eyes are tearing up, that feels like their throat is burning, their nose is burning. You know, some of them may have skin rashes. Uh, I've, I've heard that reported as well. These individuals, you know, are having problems breathing. Their lungs feel like they're burning. The question becomes, what was it that they were actually exposed to? That's a big question. And the next one is, how much of these different chemicals were they exposed to? And then the third question is, well, this is a mixture so do we have certainty in the techniques that were used by the US EPA when it comes to, let's say, the air quality to say, you know what, we assess the mixture of the air, uh, the mixture of the chemicals in the air, and we can tell you that they're safe. Well, that's essentially what happened is that the EPA came in and EPA said at some point, uh, several days after the train derailment, they said the air is safe to breathe. People are now allowed to come back into their homes. But right now, today is April 19th, uh, 2023. We're, we're still hearing reports of people complaining about, you know, uh, eyes burning, nose burning, lungs burning, uh, some skin effects. We're still hearing some of this, not as much as we did at the beginning. And so as a toxicologist, the first place I go to is, well, number one, that sounds like a mixtures issue. Number two, I know that EPA typically does not do mixtures type assessments when looking at these kinds of emergency response air quality things. 
my challenge is EPA hasn't actually told us how they are doing these air quality uh, assessments to say that the air is safe to breathe. They haven't actually told us what data they're using, what safe values they, they are using, and how they came to this conclusion. And that's something that uh, I'm, I'm working on trying to get uh, from EPA is how exactly they came to that conclusion. Now, having said that, uh, from a science communication standpoint, one of the challenges that I notice is we need to be honest with the public and we need to be clear about what we are, what we are certain about and what we are uncertain about and what that uncertainty is. And I think uh, I'm going to play some audio here. The, the uh, House of Representatives, uh, the uh, House Committee on um, Energy and Commerce, and specifically the Subcommittee on Environment, Manufacturing, and Critical Materials, held a, a meeting on March 28th, 2023, where they examined uh, this issue. And they, they were asking uh, the, the, the chair of the full committee, and that is um, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, uh, she asked specifically um, the EPA regional administrator, can you tell us about the uncertainty with respect to um, with respect to your air quality assessment? Now, you know, let's let's play the audio so you can hear exactly uh, what uh, she said, as well as how uh, EPA regional administrator Shore responded. So here we go. We'll play this clip. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. To all our witnesses, thank you for being here and for your attention in response to this tragedy. I wanted to focus on risk communication, which is so important in an emergency. In 2013, a National Academies of Science manual stated, quote, it is important that communication strategies include plans to collect information that might reduce uncertainties or plans to revisit the decision once more data are gathered. The National Academies specifically emphasized reporting uncertainties when fright factors are involved or intended audience distrust outcomes that suggest low risk, but the public is convinced the risks are serious. So to all of you, I just would like to ask you a few questions. When it comes to the environment or the health risk posed by air, water, and soil contamination in East Palestine, how much scientific uncertainty exists where people should not draw conclusions about the results just yet? And we'll start with um, uh, Administrator Shore and, and work across. Chairman McMorris-Rogers, science is our agency's lodestar, and we base our work and decisions on the data we have and on the best scientific knowledge available to us at the time. Would, are you able to speak to the uncertainty that may exist today regarding some of the conclusions that have been drawn about the chemicals that were spilled in this tragedy? We have, in the air monitoring realm, relied on a multi-layered approach of sophisticated equipment that has both sampling and monitoring, including a what's called a TAGA bus, a trace atmospheric gas analyzer bus that can take samples, analyze them in real time, and that has for 10 hours a day been circling the community and more particularly the work site. Based on the data we have, we've seen no sustained elevated levels of any compound that would have be of health concerns. 
So there uh, you heard the exchange between uh, Chair uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, uh, Chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, who was uh, sitting in with the uh, Subcommittee on Environment, Manufacturing and Critical Materials, asking a question of uh, uh, Regional Administrator Shore. And unfortunately, um, Administrator Shore uh, kind of dodged the question. She didn't actually answer it, uh, which I think... Uh, Chair Rogers uh, picked up on and uh, asked her uh, again to uh, uh, address the question more fully, and, and Administrator Shore uh, declined to do so. I think the important thing here is what I believe Chair uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers was trying to get at was, you know, did EPA appropriately communicate the scientific uncertainty about its conclusions regarding the safety of the air to breathe within East Palestine, Ohio. And it's clear that either, I, I, honestly, I believe Administrator Shore uh, is, not, um, uh, is not a toxicologist, and so she probably was not well prepared uh, to answer that particular question. Um, and I think what, what Administrator Shore should have stated is, how they came to the, the conclusion that they did regarding uh, the safety of the air to breathe, but then talk about the scientific uncertainty with respect to that conclusion. Uh, Administrator Shore did talk about the fact that they are using a lot of, uh, of equipment to measure the different levels of chemicals, and that's great. Uh, however, there's also the case of the unknown unknown. So, uh, things that maybe they should be measuring that they aren't aware that they should be measuring, right? Those are always the hardest things to figure out. As well as um, Administrator Shore doesn't really talk about how they uh, are looking at this from a mixture standpoint. And I believe that's because EPA is probably not looking at this as a mixture. It sounds like EPA is probably looking at this in terms of single chemicals. And that's, that's reflected in Administrator Shore's answer. In, in her answer, she said, you know, we didn't see any single chemical go above the health threshold. Well, there, there's a couple of wrinkles to this. Number one, what health threshold are they using? How old is that data? On how many people is that data based? Or is it based on animals? If it's animals, how many studies are we talking? How many animals are we talking? Are the endpoints that they're looking at relevant? So if these, these health effects are going to be driven by scientific studies, and these studies may not look at all of the health effects that, are, that the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are actually complaining about. Again, these are things that you know, we would be able to, as toxicologists, understand, or risk assessors even, we would be able to understand if EPA told us how they're doing this. Now, if I were the regional administrator, guys, I get this question a lot when when I talk to friends and colleagues about um, about this particular issue. If I were the regional administrator, the question comes back to me as, "What would you have said?" And let, th this is going to be my my. I haven't really thought about it a whole lot, um, but um, I think I think right now, if I were put on the spot, I think what I would probably say is. Uh, you know, if, if we, you know, and, and I'm assuming that they're using a single chemical approach and not a mixture approach, I'd say, you know, 
uh, based on the single chemical approach, based on the chemicals that we're measuring. And there could be chemicals that uh, are important that we are not measuring just simply because we don't know to measure for them. But based off of the information that we have right now, we do not have any single chemicals that are above the health thresholds. However, there is, there is a great deal of uncertainty here because uh, we're dealing with a mixture issue. Um, no one is ever exposed to a single chemical. We're always exposed to mixtures of chemicals. And as a result of that, we have not historically studied mixtures, especially mixtures of these types of chemicals uh, involved in this emergency response situation in East Palestine, Ohio. We haven't studied this particular mixture to see how it might actually impact uh, people. So it is entirely possible, and it's in, it's in fact probably very plausible, that what we're seeing is a response to these chemicals that may be due to mixture effects that uh, we have no uh, science behind to help us understand the toxicological um, effects that uh, people are currently experiencing right now. And so by me saying this, I guess to me, it's, it's a bit disingenuous and a bit uh, paternalistic um, in the pejorative sense to say, you know, the air is safe to breathe. I know you people are, are experiencing health effects, but I'm telling you the, the air is safe to breathe. So I don't know where it's coming from. To me, that just feels very disingenuous as a scientist I look at this um, very unfortunate situation as an opportunity for us to improve our understanding of risk and mixture science. And so when I see very clear indication of we have an exposure and now we have a very clear indication of we have some kind of effect, what this tells me is our current toxicological paradigm, if it says that the air is safe to breathe, is not working. We need a better paradigm. We need to look at this in a very different way. That's what my takeaway from this is. Now, there are people who will probably disagree with me, and that's fine. Disagreement is perfectly fine. I have no issues with that. But I just find it very difficult as a scientist to say, we've got this exposure and we have this very large concentration of people who are experiencing some kind of an effect. When we look at single chemical at a time, guess what? They shouldn't have these effects. Well, that to me is the first clue that this is a mixtures issue. Number two, like I said, this, this would be, it would be horrible to squander this opportunity to say that, you know what, maybe we don't know everything about, about these chemicals and in this mixture in particular. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to say, hmm, maybe we should create a better product <clears throat> to, to assess mixtures risk. Maybe we need to use this as an opportunity to say, guess what? Train derailments are going to happen more often. And, you know, I, I enjoy the, the members of Congress who say, you know, the, the easiest solution to this is obviously keep the trains on the tracks. And I agree 100 percent. That, that is that is by far the easiest way to avoid this. Unfortunately, until we figure out how to keep these trains on the tracks, we're going to keep having these derailment issues. And we're probably going to have another situation like East Palestine and so it behooves us to understand emergency response mixtures much better. What I personally would like to see, I would love to see Congress come up with a bill that says, you know what, 
the federal government needs to spend a lot more time studying mixtures, which it does. We've, we've done a horrible job of studying mixtures over the years. We need to invest much more money into it because that is what we're actually exposed to. And we need to do a better job of characterizing what mixtures are we likely going to be exposed to. We need to do a better job of understanding what kind of mixtures are we going to have in emergency response situations like this train derailment, like other train derailments. You know, Lord forbid we have, you know, a tanker truck full of chlorine gas and, and other things colliding. You know, I mean, it's just we, we need to do a better job of anticipating these kinds of these kinds of threats. And this was something that uh, I had a small group at the Army that we would do is we would try to anticipate what kinds of threats are we going to have for the warfighter? And once we anticipate what those threats are, what kind of mitigation strategies do we need to have? In this particular case, our first mitigation strategy is better characterizing the threat and the effects of that threat. Once we have a better characterization of that, then maybe we can come up with better plans, you know, better ways of, uh, of, of, of monitoring, better ways, I think, of doing better assessments of what the actual toxicological impact is going to be so that we don't bring people back too soon into a contaminated environment. That's one of my other concerns is that we want to make sure that we don't bring them in too early. When, when I think about the East Palestine uh, response, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've, I've tried not to talk about this for a while because I didn't want to you know get in the middle of all this. But when, when I think about the East Palestine issue and what's going on here, and with, with respect especially to doing a single chemical, what appears to be a single chemical at a time assessment for a mixtures issue and saying that the air is safe to breathe, this sounds an awful lot like 9-11 and the response that we had during the cleanup. It sounds an awful lot like EPA coming in after 9-11 at ground zero and saying this, the air is safe to breathe. And then we end up with all these firefighters, first responders and volunteers who now have all of these different health effects. It sounds a lot like the army and its burn pits, right? Uh, we had burn pits in the Middle East. We we're burning all kinds of things, things that never should have been burned, for instance. And now we've got uh, warfighters coming back with all kinds of health ailments that may actually be associated with the burn pits. Uh, you know, and there, there's science to to support that notion. Again, those aren't single chemical at times scenarios. Those are mixtures. And so in all these cases, we have these mixtures that we don't typically encounter. So it's not something that we're going to see in the wider population necessarily. So we don't have good epidemiological data for it, but it's something that we could probably guess what's going to happen. And maybe we need to do a better job of studying these mixtures that we could anticipate into the future. That's kind of where I'm thinking of going. And, and honestly, you know, it, it takes leadership from Congress and it takes, you know, leadership from the executive branch of the government to, to say, you know what, we've been doing toxicology wrong for quite a while. The single chemical all the time thing is good for certain things. And we've learned a lot, which is good, but we do need to also invest in mixtures studies. We need to do a larger investment in mixtures. We need to do a larger investment in a capability to reach back to scientists who understand these mixtures and who understand what may be going on and 
to help our first responders, to help our policymakers, to help our folks on the ground at places like East Palestine figure out what the best way is uh, going forward for evacuating people, when to bring them back, uh, what might they be exposed to, what kind of health effects should they be on the lookout for, uh, you know, these kinds of things. So anyway, coming back to uncertainty, the important thing here is scientists and policy folks need to do a better job about talking about uncertainty. There's lots of things we're unsure about. We need to make sure that the public understands this. All too often in the press, all too often from government officials, we hear extreme definitive statements. The air is safe to breathe. The water is safe to drink. What we need is a little bit more uncertainty about that. What we need is more transparency about how they made that conclusion. How did you get there? And then tell us what you don't know, right? These are the things that we need to know about. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think we'll end it at that. So to wrap up, what, what, are, what are the things? If you don't remember anything else I said, what do I want you to remember? What I want you to remember is science is riddled with uncertainty. Especially when we're using small samples, it's hard for us to say what the population response is going to be. And unfortunately, with a lot of what we call acute effects, which an acute effect is something uh, is a is a health outcome or a, or a adverse a health effect that you're going to have after a short duration of exposure. And when I say short, I mean we're talking you know hours to months, you know that kind of an exposure. Once we start talking closer to years, now we're talking about chronic type exposures. And, um, you know, one of the questions that I've been uh, fielding lately is, uh, especially with respect to East Palestine, Ohio, uh, what are the potential chronic effects here? And I'll be blunt with you because I'm going I'm cutting it to you straight here. The uncertainty is really high. I can't I cannot tell you with any great deal of certainty what kind of long term effects there might be because we're dealing with a mixture and we're dealing with a mixture of a lot of chemicals. You know, you'll often hear me say, you know, there's the difference between risk and hazard, right? We always want to regulate on risk. You know, what is the probability that you're going to get something? And we know that there are safe doses. The problem is with mixtures, finding that safe dose becomes a lot trickier. And, you know, there's some people who believe that mixtures uh, only work additively. Some believe that it's, uh, um, you know, you can have these uh, super a uh, additive things um, uh, as well. So it, it's uh, the response is more than just the additive uh, response. Um, and I got to tell you, it, it, biologically, it's, it's, it's very complicated. So there are certain things where uh, it's like whittling a piece of wood, right? So in biology, with some things... Uh, a chemical at certain concentrations is just going to whittle away at your biological defenses until eventually your defenses are all gone. And, you know, all these chemicals working together can whittle away at certain things. And then, you know, you might go into the literature and you might read some of my other papers where I'm like, that doesn't happen at all. And so it's very situational 
as to when that happens and when it doesn't happen. And, and we could talk about that another time. But when we're talking about things like uh, skin irritation, eye irritation, uh, throat, nose, and um, airway irritation, those are things that are not necessarily going to be, um, you know, you have to overcome a certain level. Yes, you, there is a threshold. You, that threshold is based on your defense mechanisms. Now, all these chemicals working together are working together to whittle away at that defense mechanism, right? And that's the thing that we really have to be aware of is, you know, that depending upon the system, there's different kinds of defense mechanisms. And that really is what uh, determines whether or not you, you, you know, where your threshold is and all that stuff. So is there a threshold with mixtures? Of course, there's still a threshold with mixtures. There will be a level of a combination of chemicals below which you won't see any kind of problems. And ever, and here's the catch. Everyone has a different threshold. And your threshold is impacted by all kinds of things. So keep that in mind. And so that that's another source of that uncertainty. So, you know, for me right now, we have people who are showing health effects. Uh, can I tell you that is absolutely caused by this mixture of chemicals that they're being exposed to? I cannot tell you that for a fact, 100%. There's uncertainty there. What I can tell you is right now, we don't really understand what's happening. And I know people don't like to hear that. And I know that's why a lot of policy people prefer to give you, um, you know, information that's a little bit more on the positive side. So in the chronic case, do I know what's going to happen? No, I have no idea what's going to happen. I could make some educated guesses, but until we actually start studying these mixtures in great gory detail, we will have a hard time saying what is actually going to happen. Do I believe there's going to be chronic, chronic uh, health effects? I'm not entirely sure. Right now, I would bet against it based on the information that I know. However, there are other chemicals that we haven't measured, so I can't say for certain. But for most individuals, I highly doubt that the mixture is going to cause chronic health effects. That's just me spitballing it based off of the limited information I have right now. I reserve the right to change that opinion as new information comes out. So uh, today I'm saying one thing, I may say something else uh, down the road that is different. And the reason why is because science is always, 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 always constantly changing. And that's the other thing I need you to remember is that Scientists will change, we will change our mind as the information we have available to us also changes. And that is actually a very important life skill for everyone. You should not be stuck to a decision that you made based off of information that is now stale. You also have the right to change your mind about whatever it is based on new information. And that's, that's something that is very important in the critical thinking process. Anyway, and of course, critical thinking is something that I, I'm hoping uh, my podcast helps us all do. So with that, uh, you're listening to the Critical Science Podcast. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.